Cody Sullivan, and thank you for being with us. There are some exciting things happening behind the scenes here at Pulp, including the creation of our very own website and a departure away from SoundCloud as the permanent host of the show. I'd love to tell you more about what's coming, but I'd like to keep as much under wraps as possible until we can iron out all the kinks. Rest assured, however, that good changes are coming, and moving forward into the new year, the future looks very bright for Pulp. Many thanks to show contributor and tech consultant Chris Goulet for his amazing assistance. Moving right along, we have a deliciously terrifying episode planned for you today. Our first tale begins after a successful heist. This dark reimagining of a classic fairy tale is much more than a story of hunger and greed. It is a dissertation in deceit. This story is called Red Blood white snow listen once there were two brothers who made their living by taking what belonged to others in order to make good their escapes the pair struck when inclement weather was expected especially snow and ice one night it happened that they had been able to steal a tremendous amount of money in fact so great was their take that they would both be able to live in splendor for the rest of their days, provided they were not caught. After driving through a particularly frightening storm, the brothers arrived as planned at an abandoned shack in which they planned to hide their ill-gotten gains and to return when they had well and truly eluded capture. Getting out of the car, the younger brother noticed that an axe lay in the cold snow by the back door of the shack. Since there is no honor among thieves, and because matters of money between family always breed bad blood, the younger brother thought that he might use this axe to dispatch his elder, ensuring his fortune and removing a witness to his misdeeds in one stroke. Brother, I shall unlock the door. Take our money inside and begin to make a most careful count of it while I cover our tracks. This the younger brother said. This the older brother did, but rather than turning to obscure their trail, the younger brother took up the axe and buried it into the neck of his former accomplice, spilling blood across the bag of money, which now belonged to him alone. He took from the bag enough booty to help him along his way, but left his brother where he had fallen. The younger brother locked the door to the shed, placed the key in his pocket, obscured his tracks, and took off down the road in the bowels of the blizzard. After driving for an hour or so in this manner, the robber came upon a stroke of ill fortune. The blowing snow had so obscured the road that he did not see until the very last moment Seven figures illuminated in his headlights, each stooped with age or deformity, wearing furs and scowls and beards to a man. 
When the robber swerved that he might continue unmolested, he drove into a patch of ice and was flung off the road into a deep ravine and ultimately around a strong old oak tree. His car beyond repair, the man got out and began to trudge through the knee-deep snow. For two hours he walked until his toes were bitten with frost and he felt he must collapse and die from exhaustion. Just at this moment, however, the storm eased and the robber saw that he was in a clearing by a stream at the bottom of a deep ravine. In the center of this was a strange squat hut with cheerful light as from a fire flickering within. A woman stepped out with hair as black as ravens, skin as white as snow, and lips as red as brother's blood. Despite the cold, she wore only a thin white shift which showed her voluptuous shape. You there, come into my home and rest by the fire. This the criminal did, feeling as though whatever treachery might await him in the peculiar cabin could not be worse than death from exposure. Upon entering the hut, the robber noted that the place was furnished with a great quantity of chairs, seemingly for people of abnormally small stature. The beautiful woman bade him sit by the hearth, where she brought him strange soup, thick with tender white meat. She sang to him and stroked his hair as he drank his bowl dry. In a dream of warmth and comfort, the man began to doze. Some time later, the robber awoke, seeing that the fire had burned down considerably in the night. He moved to place another log upon it, but found there were none in the wood box. From an armchair, with its back turned to him, the thief heard the voice of the beautiful woman. If you would stay for the morning meal, go into the yard and gather up wood from our pile, for I must set to preparing the breakfast meat before my landlord's return. Dreading the cold, but not wishing to press his luck, the robber obeyed. A short walk from the house, he saw the woodpile in the pre-dawn glow. He imagined he heard singing or low chanting coming from the woods, but dismissed it as the fancies of a man exhausted and still suffering the ravages of cold and impact. Wearily, he began to take logs from the stack. When he had removed the first log, he found beneath it many long, coarse hairs. These he took for the nest of a family of mice. Taking a second log, he saw great splotches of something crusty and reddish-brown. This he took for the sap from wood stacked before it had dried. But when the robber removed a third log, he saw peering back at him an eye set in frozen blood within a flayed human skull. Uh. At this the man screamed and leapt backwards, but met resistance. The comely woman from the hut was standing behind him, still wearing her night shift, white as the winter snow. Quickly now, 
They return from their work with appetites and tempers about them. The man looked to the woods, from which the odd singing or chanting had grown much louder. He saw, to his horror, seven wretched tiny men, each bent with age or deformity, each wearing furs and scowls and beards. With this, she lifted the hatchet she kept by the woodpile. To this day, they say that in a locked shack in the forest, far from prying eyes, lies a murdered brother and a bag of ill-gotten treasure. So, remember this. Those who give in to their greed and forsake the love of family for the love of money will eventually find themselves thus consumed. At the end of a road-long travel, there is nothing more satisfying than reaching your destination. Transit has a way of capturing the mind and body in stasis, stuck almost out of time and space until the motor dies. Eventually, the journey ends, giving way to the hope of new beginnings. It can be the close of a bitter chapter, but with the promise of untold possibilities and wide-open vistas of opportunities in the chapter and pages ahead. For the focal point of our next story, this kind of catharsis is, and will always be, his only desire. So buckle up, sit back, and prepare yourself for the ride. This story is called The Drive. sound of tires groaning over the rumble strip that woke me up. I was nearly off the road and quickly jerked the wheel to the right, getting back in my lane. I wiped a hot tear from my cheek and massaged my aching jaw. Lucky no one else was driving this stretch of highway at this hour. I took a swig from the bottle of Canadian Club lying in the passenger seat, trying to snap out of this daze. The radio was buzzing static, so I started searching for something to keep me alert. Ideally, something loud and obnoxious, like that candy pop music Kate used to listen to when she was getting ready for school. Jesus, that was a lifetime ago. I lit a cigarette, last in the pack, and watched the road as the embers smoldered in view. How long had it been? I knew the answer, but during long drives like this I find my thoughts narrow and become stuck in a loop. An old, drunken, broken record. 
The last time I saw Kate was just before she left for school. Audrey, her mother, held open the car door for her, called me a miserable drunk as she slammed it shut, and drove off without me getting to say so much as a hello or a good luck to my daughter before she left for Arizona State University. It was still dark, but the coming dawn purpled the sprawling sand and the Joshua trees that grew on the edge of the highway, one every 200 feet or so. I wonder if Kate would be happy to see me. Sure, her mother brought out the worst in me, and she deserved everything she got, but I never laid so much as a goddamn finger on Katie Cat. I hope she said as much to her roommate and her friends. Hell, she may not even have mentioned me at all. I thought about that for a few miles. The cigarette was down to the filter. I took one last bitter drag before flicking the butt out the window. Up ahead in the distance, I noticed headlights. A pair of glowering eyes watching my long approach. Who else but me would be out on the road this early in the middle of fucking nowhere? You lost, buddy? I said to the piercing lights. Suddenly the radio crackled, springing to life. I looked over and was startled to see the radio scanning for stations, cycling through all available frequencies. I pounded my fist on top of the dash. Fucking thing is busted. I rubbed my jaw again. It was throbbing worse than before. I reached over to grab the bottle again when suddenly a familiar voice came over the radio. Well, I'm not sure Kate would even recognize you if you didn't stink like cheap whiskey. That was Audrey's voice. What the hell was my ex-wife doing coming through the radio? I turned my interior light on and rubbed my eyes. This couldn't be real. Audrey? That you? You sleeping around with truckers now, huh? Playing with their CBs? I'm afraid the reality is much, much worse, David. I grabbed the bottle and drank deeply. I held the bottle as I remembered Audrey driving away with my daughter. God damn it, Audrey. What do you want? To give you what you want. To make you feel miserable. You adore it. Your old crutch misery. You always liked feeling like a helpless victim. Don't you remember, David? When you told the police I slapped you before you broke my arm at the dinner table in front of little Kate wearing her cute, goofy bib? Do you remember that? Yeah, and you had it coming like always. Pushing my buttons all the time like that. You... you ought to be committed. I was getting closer to the headlights. The car was off the road, and I could see a faint trail of smoke rising between the lights. It looked like the vehicle had gone off the road and into a large Joshua tree. Your sad song about your mean old wife may have tricked the responding officers, but here, now, retribution has arrived. My gift is your misery. I was close enough now to see the glow of the car's interior, and I could make out the silhouette of the driver, upright and motionless, with a 
strange protrusion coming out of where his head should be. My jaw trembled, and I felt the unmistakable feeling of foreboding in the pit of my stomach. I grimaced. This was an accident, and a nasty-looking one at that. You're not wrong. It is an accident. Did the smoke give it away? Recognize the victim? I slowed the car to a crawl when I was twenty feet or so away. My heart leapt into my throat when I noticed it was the same piece of shit Honda I was driving. I mean, the very same. The agony of the moment increased with every passing second as I finally passed the driver's side window, and, despite what I was about to see, I became suddenly, horribly aware of the fact I wasn't dreaming. I couldn't stifle a scream when I saw the driver. It was me, and I was very, very dead. I could barely recognize my counterpart save for the clothing. My head was thrown back, forehead deeply caved in from where I evidently had slammed into the steering wheel. The airbags didn't deploy. Blood had spattered the interior violently. Worst of all, my head was thrown back with the neck bent at a broken, backwards angle and lodged in my mouth, splitting the seams of my cheeks, was a broken bottle of Canadian Club. I had been drinking it when I crashed. I threw aside the bottle I was holding and struggled to catch my breath as my car rolled forward and away from the grisly tableau. There, there, honey. You'd think you'd get used to this by now. What's happening to me? Who are you? You've been judged and juried, David, and you're looking at your sentence. To be fair, in all our years together, this is the first time you've ever asked that. No. N no. I'm visiting my daughter. This isn't real. I'm on my way to, to Arizona. I see we're back on script. Here, see that sign ahead? A large blue sign with yellow writing was quickly coming into view. I realized that I'd been picking up speed since passing the accident. When it came into view, the sign read, Leaving Arizona. Come back soon. I shut my eyes and shook my head, feeling tears welling up beneath my lids. My chest caved into sobs. I, I have to go back. I have to turn around. Shh. Relax, David. It's time to start again. Where were we? Ah, yes. Candy pop and slamming car doors. Go to sleep, you little baby. A cold shiver raged through my body, and I felt the distinct seduction of sleep fill my eyes. I had to turn around. I was so 
close. I fought against the unnatural sleep, gritting my teeth and straining to keep my eyes open. In a final act of desperation, I grabbed the wheel and turned it as hard as my meager strength could muster. Kate, I... I'm sorry. The sound of rumble strips snapped me awake. I brushed a tear away from my cheek and grabbed a smoke, last in the pack. I decided to play with the radio to see what I could find to keep me up. Hopefully something loud and obnoxious. Something like that candy pop that Kate used to listen to. Beyond the Veil will be right back after a word from our generous sponsor. Let's face it, it's 2019. Time to move on from your traditional subscription box mystery games. Sure, it was fun trying to catch a fake serial killer or solving the mystery behind an esoteric and <clears throat> mass-produced sculpture of Cthulhu, but those days are behind you. Say goodbye to boring and I'm watching you to your new favorite subscription service, To Hunt a Victim. <coughs> to Hunt a Victim is a subscription-based, male-oriented, multiplayer game that you play with real strangers. Real strangers! Here's how it works. In your first delivery, you will receive a picture of your victim a scent-laden article of clothing, and your first clue on where to find them. To Hunt a Victim has subscribers all over the nation, so even if you're stuck in Boise, Idaho, your victim could be buying ice cream on the streets of downtown Los Angeles. Just listen to this real satisfied customer. Yeah, you know, I never had a reason to check out New York, but... When I finally caught up to Brenda last spring break, not only did I learn that she leaves her back door unlocked, but she also eats her hot dogs without condiments. So that seems a bit off if you ask me. Every month, To Hunt a Victim does the legwork of stalking a stranger for you. You'll get such amazing insights as when your victim leaves for work, do they have any dogs, and their social security number. Last year, I used Brenda's social security number to access her credit card statements. Let's just say someone broke the $20 limit at their company's Christmas Yankee Swap. <sighs> oh, Brenda. I'd like to say that's just you being generous, but I know you better than that, you big goof. But wait, you may be asking, how is any of this legal? Here's the good news. All of our victims have opted in to being pursued by you, the hunter. Our sister service, Catch Me If You Can, provides real people the opportunity to be stalked, no matter how unimportant they may be. Once you consent to be pursued, you can sit back and revel in the impending danger. Just listen to this satisfied customer. Yeah, I signed up for Catch Me If You Can about eight months ago. I've never been the target of any sort of psychological torture, and I figured I needed some excitement in my life seeing how I live alone and all. It was so easy to share my information. 
All I had to do was link my Facebook account to their server, and instantly all my data was ready to be shared with my hunter. Thanks to Catch Me If You Can and to Hunt a Victim, I'm finally not sleeping at night. To sign up for this amazing subscription service, all you need to do is download the Hunter app from the Google or iTunes App Store, create an account, and you're ready to start your free trial stalking. Use the promo code ICU to get your first box of clues and apparel on us. Sign up for the whole year and you'll receive bonus baby pictures of your victim. Brenda, if you're listening, I think I love you. Catch me if you can. And to hunt a victim are registered trademarks of Miskatonic Labs of Memetics. So what are you waiting for? Download the app and get lost finding others today. To hunt a victim. Helping strangers connect since 2018. Those who have been with Pulp since the beginning may remember the very first episode of Alone on the Couch, where I gave an overall positive review to a then lesser-known horror movie called Hell House, LLC. The independent film did a nice job within the found footage genre, and I ended up giving the film a decent score of 6.5 out of 10 possible screams. So you can imagine my delight when I stumbled upon a sequel, Hell House, LLC 2, The Abaddon Hotel, on the horror streaming service Shudder. Naturally, I needed to watch it, and more importantly, I needed to talk about it. Join me for our next segment, a new installation into our review series, Alone on the Couch. Greetings, ghoulies. Pulp creator Cody Sullivan here with another under-the-radar horror film for you all to check out. Oh, God, there's a chirping fire alarm somewhere in my building, so I'd just like to apologize. I know it's there. It's in the background. I can't do anything about it, so I'm really sorry if you, if you keep hearing that chirping. But anyway, moving right along. Uh, today we'll be looking at Hell House LLC 2, The Abaddon Hotel. While the title is certainly a mouthful, I was beyond excited to find out about this sequel. I just happened to stumble across it while looking for the original Hell House LLC. Because I reviewed the first film in the pilot episode of Pulp, I felt like I had to do my due diligence and give this Shudder exclusive a look. While I won't be going into any specifics about the plot, please beware minor incidental spoilers for Hell House 2. I was very pleased to discover that this film was written and directed by Stephen Cognetti, who also wrote and directed the first film. I praised the original film for being a lovingly crafted, small, independent film. However, due to the success of the first film, I immediately noticed that this was produced for Shudder, the sequel, and it looks to have had a much larger budget than the original. The camera quality, larger cast, and even some minor CGI moments are examples of this. So how does that affect the film's mood and atmosphere? In my personal opinion, less is more. Which brings me to my first gripe with Hell House 2. 
It feels like the makers of the film tried to do, well, too much. This movie is, at times, a jumbled mess. Hopping in between different times and locations with just general abandon. There's also numerous scenes of things happening at the Abaddon Hotel that have been captured by YouTube stars and Facebook live streams, which really doesn't add much to the film. Sure, it adds about five minutes of tension-building scary stuff at a time in the movie where there really isn't much happening, but there's no real substance to those scenes, and thus they feel like filler, which isn't great in a movie that's only 90 minutes long. At times, this made it feel like two movies kind of smashed together, one being a vignette-driven short horror collection a la VHS, if you've ever seen that, um, and the other film being about a group of unlikely people investigating a haunted hotel for their own interests. Despite what I've said, the high points in this film are still quite good. There are little specks of easter eggs thrown into the film, including a super brief, like, blink-if-you-miss-it mention of Gehenna, which is an ancient cursed city. It appears in the Bible and, and other uh, religious texts. Um, as well as there are some context clues about the nature of the hotel. Uh, for example, there is a Latin phrase that appears as graffiti in one of the hotel's many hallways. It reads, Est aperta porta or open house, which is a nod to the hotel seemingly welcoming in people from the outside. I appreciate the fact that the set is either the same as the original or diligently crafted to at least look the same in parts of the film uh, as they were in the first. Uh, like the kitchen is the same, um, there's like a bar that looks the same, a lot of the hallways are similar, but there are also a lot of new bits of the hotel which you may not have seen in the first film, I'd have to go back and take a look. Uh, what's even better are there are scenes with the original cast from the first film, and they help to kind of tie together the plots of both films in a nice, neat little bow as best as they can. Although, I do have to say, there is such a confusing mix of quality filmmaking and just bizarre directorial choices. I'm not a fan of the non-linear timeline this movie employs, as it forces the viewer to remember where and when the characters are at any given point in the film. Uh, that can be a little frustrating at times, uh, because I found I had to pause and kind of go back uh, a few minutes to see where I once was in the film versus where I ended up in just the very next scene. Um, it can be a little bit confusing and seems very forced. I don't think that it's particularly well done. Uh, because of this, uh, I give Hell House LLC 2, The Abaddon Hotel, a middling score of 5.5 out of 10. As a standalone movie, I think it has little merit, but for fans of the original, it is worth a look, especially given the fact that it ends up setting up and hinting at the possibility of a trilogy. I mean, we could be witnessing the unveiling of a full HHLLCCU or Hell House LLC Cinematic Universe. This movie can be purchased through Google Play on YouTube for $3.99 or as part of Shudder's subscription service. If you enjoyed the first film and are willing to take a fairly large departure from most of the elements of the original film, you'll be satisfied spending four bucks to see the sequel. 
And that's all for this week, folks. Until next time, I'm Cody Sullivan, and this has been my couch. Thanks for listening. We've traversed the winding path through snow and forest, drove for miles through the forgotten desert, and have arrived now at the end of our episode. We here at Pulp hope you've enjoyed listening to our stories, and we are eager to provide you with much, much more to come. Red Blood, White Snow was written by Gustav Grift with performances by Jamie Danner, Chris Goulet, and Cody Sullivan. The Drive was written by C.A. Sullivan and performed by Jamie Danner and Cody Sullivan. Music and editing was done by Cody Sullivan and special thanks to our co-producer, Zachary Husband. If you would like to make a story submission to Pulp From Beyond the Veil, you can reach us at pulpfrombeyond at gmail.com. All submissions will be reviewed and considered, and please limit the stories to 1,500 words or less. Pulp From Beyond the Veil is a bi-weekly podcast with episodes coming out every other Tuesday, so tune in next time if you'd like to hear more original content just like this. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. This has been Pulp From Beyond the Veil. I'm Cody Sullivan, signing off.